0: The word of the Lord. If you would uh, take your sheet and turn to the other side, have the reading uh, that was just read on one side, and then Got this uh, structure of Joshua, and then our outline below that. Now, you know, introductions to sermons are supposed to be like a good, engaging story, right? Life situation, something of vital interest to the listener. And along those lines, I'm beginning with the structure of Hebrew narrative, right? (laughs) You didn't know it would get so good, but it is that good. Let's hear it for Hebrew structure. Yes. Now, the point is that Hebrew, in a Hebrew story, the order of events and the way they arrange the events does form a kind of treasure hunt for us. Structure is helps us understand the meaning of the passage because it emphasizes certain parts of the story. It's like your teacher uh, going through a history book and pointing out certain things she wants you to remember and you underline them with yellow highlight. And that's why I say here in the introduction, Hebrew yellow highlight is the structure, how you see what the writer really wants you to get from the story. And actually chapters one through eight form a major section in Joshua of a story. And then the way he arranges that story is to underline its uh, importance, the importance of these parts. And one of the chief techniques not only in Hebrew writing, but the this constantly in their poetry, in their oration, in their, uh, dissertati- in, their in their writings, and that is uh, the great word chiasmus. Okay, now if you know anything about uh, Greek letters, if you're a chi o, for instance, you know about chi. It's like an X, right? That's where we get chiasmus. It's an X. So here's the idea. You start your story this way. You get to this side. You come up and you come back where you started. Okay. That's why I have that little X right there. But I like it better to have an arrow pointed and an arrow coming back because you go in and you come back. In that sense, it's kind of like uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark. He goes in at the first of the first one, he goes in the cave, he makes it all the way to the treasure, and he comes out the way he come, uh, He came in with the treasure, okay? That's kind of the idea. You, 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 you come out uh, with the treasure. And so you see in this outline that the law, the word of God, is the entrance of this chapters 1 through 8, but it's also the exit of chapters 1 through 8. The very first thing we find in chapter one is the very last thing in chapter eight. That's on purpose. That's to underscore the critical importance of the word. But at the very center of it is that Israel, once they entered the land, first thing they did was worship God through circumcision and Passover. And the writer is showing that this is critical to everything that Israel will ever do. The word of God and the worship of God. So the treasure, the, the, the center point uh, of this passage, and you might say the uh, beginning and end, the, the, the word of God, then we'll go to the worship of God and then r- the response of God. And you see the response in the B section, where discouragement in B prime of the faithless Israelite Achan, so it presents to us these two responses: Are we going to walk in the shoes of Rahab? Or are we going to walk in the shoes of Achan? What will we do with the word? What will we do with worship? What will we do with, with God? So as we look at the word of God, you might say that the word is like the safety cables on each side of a of a bridge to hold on to the boundaries, the fences, the rails of our life. And you see the emphasis there in chapter one of a constant meditation in order to be careful to obey it the word in scripture is our nourishment it is how we examine and discover ourselves our our sin and and how we can grow in grace it it reconstructs us and remodels us it purifies us it's this powerful force in our life that causes us to be like god as we give ourselves to it it's like the central aspect of of life christ prayed in john 17 Sanctify them. Make them holy by your truth. That's his prayer. That will be his effort in your life to make you holy, to make you more like him as you give yourself to this word that he has given us. And the emphasis in Joshua is obedience. The chapter 8 comes after they have obeyed him. Even in the disobedience of Achan, that was corrected. There was repentance. So this has been eight chapters of obedience, giving themselves to this God to do his will. Being careful, as he says in chapter 1, to do according to the law. Don't turn to the right or the left, he says. Be careful. Meditate so that you'll be careful. See, the whole point of giving yourself to the Word and meditating on it is, is not just to fill your head, but to be careful to live it out in your life. That's the sense of Joshua. And this generation, after 40 years in the wilderness, seeing this whole unfaithful older generation die off. The, the the Israelites, this younger generation, you might say, were desert trained, right? They had been fed with manna miraculous, miraculously every day. Well, the day before the Sabbath, they got a double... Uh, gift of manna so they didn't have to gather it on Saturday. But you get the idea. Every day they saw God's provision. They were helpless. They had no food. They were utterly dependent upon God. This trained them to trust this God, to trust what he says. It, the Manna didn't even stop. It didn't stop until after they ate the Passover. Finally, the manna stopped and they began to eat the produce of the land. So right up to after they entered the land, God's provision, which manifested his goodness to them. And then they saw God's presence uh, through the glory cloud, which led them. It told them where to camp. It was a cloud by day and fire by night. And the reason they were so willing to obey this God in Joshua uh, to, to take Jericho, for instance, is because they had come to trust him so completely. And that's going to be vital in our lives as well. Faith is the root of obedience. They were confident in his care. They were confident in his presence and in his power. And so in regard to the great wall city of Jericho, as we saw uh, recorded in chapter 6, they did exactly as God commanded them. They had the seven priests with trumpets that led the ark and they had uh, soldiers before and in the rear. And they marched all the way around Jericho. First day, second day, they marched all the way around Jericho, exactly as God tells them. They do it for six days, kind of like the six days of creation, right? And then finally, the last day, the seventh day, they go around seven times like God said. Who does that? You know, but they obeyed God because they trusted him. They knew his word was good. And of course, the walls fell. The emphasis in that chapter is not on the battle. There's very little about the battle itself. It's about their obedience The war is obedience. The battle is obedience. That's always the primary battle, obeying this word. As one writer says, true faith is blind to everything except the divine command. And they were blind to everything except God's command. That that is what they gave their lives to. And that's why they were able to enter Canaan and brothers and sisters, while they were trained in the desert, we happily are trained in the cross. We're trained by the cross of Jesus. The Israelites saw the glory of God in a fiery cloud, but we've seen the glory of God in the death and resurrection of Christ. And in second Corinthians three, Paul says the glory of all that happened with Moses is nothing It's as though it has no glory because of the glory that comes. You know, a flashlight's great in the dark, but in midday, you hardly even see it, right? And so, the glory that is broken in upon us in the person of Christ. They saw manna given from heaven. We've seen the very bread of life, Jesus Christ, who's come from heaven and gives life to the world. They were trained in the desert. We're trained in Christ. And so he so loved us that he died to rescue us. He has obviously only our good in view. Only our good as he commands us. And as we admire him and trust him, we will obey him. The more you admire and adore and love him, the more you want to give your life to him. And that's why Paul would say in Colossians 3, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And that means let the word about Christ dwell in you richly. Let this word, this word that holds forth Christ really from beginning to end, let it dwell in you richly so that you will see all the beauty and wonder of Jesus Christ so that you will cultivate amazement and awe at Jesus so that you will want to give your life up to do his will happily, not reluctantly, but gladly. Gladly sacrificing, gladly giving up all that is against his word. So we fill our heart with the rich and wonderful truth of Christ. And frankly, you and I have to be rescued from our twisted view of God that leads to disobedience. And that's all it is. The reason we would not give our life to this God is our twisted view that he's against us or our twisted view that he doesn't have our best interest at heart, which is what happened to Eve and happened to Adam, to believe that God does not have our best interest, that that obeying him is not going to bring about greater and greater freedom and richness and satisfaction and fulfillment in life. Why else would we sin? As Pascal said, every act of a human being is to be happy, even to commit suicide. And when you sin, when I sin, I'm striking out for happiness apart from God. Why? Because of my twisted view of God. Because I don't believe in God. I don't believe in his goodness. So... By God's grace, he changes us. His In his salvation, something of the glory of Christ comes to us. The glory of God comes to us in Christ. And God's love for us in Christ breaks into our hearts. And because of that, we begin to trust this God and love this God and obey this God. Let that word of Christ dwell in you richly. And Really, brothers and sisters, it's nothing short of a whole new life that God gives us. That's what it means. In Second Corinthians uh, five seventeen, <clears throat> if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away; the new has come. Uh, my my mother had both has had both of her knees replaced. Kay's mother, before she passed uh, died, her, her knees were replaced. This is life replacement. The the life that we formerly knew, which was disconnected from Christ, uh, is done away with once and for all. Life apart from Christ is gone. A life of not loving Him and trusting Him is gone. God gives us a new life of increasing, expanding trust and love and obedience by the power of His Spirit. That's encouraging. Your obedience is bound up in his salvation. He delivers you so that you will obey. That's our hope. That's the hope as you face every single sin in your life, every single character trait you want to develop, every single likeness to Jesus. Everything is bound up in the salvation of God. So, the Spirit in us brings about new perspectives and new desires and a new energy and a new determination. That's God's salvation. And it gives us great hope for change in our lives. I love the passage in Ezekiel, the promise of the new covenant. I will put my Spirit in you and I will cause you to walk in my statutes. And here's the words from Joshua and you'll be careful to obey my commandments why will you be careful because I'll put my spirit in you I will bring it about let's welcome that salvation let's trust him for that salvation let's depend upon him to do that in our lives and that does take away all excuses you know I'm too weak yeah you are I'm really bad yes you are (laughs) I really can't. No, you can't. That's right. All of that. You say a hundred things about your incapacity. And I can say more about mine. I, I promise you. I'm duller and wickeder. And I mean, I don't know your heart, but I know the darkness in my heart. But I rest in his salvation to, to move me and to change me so that I will walk in this word, which is the entrance and the exit of this section. Right? It's the entrance and the exit of our lives. It's the whole of our lives. But then the worship of God, it's remarkable that when the Jordan is parted and they walk through on dry land into the uh, land of Canaan, they're there now. They're open to attack. Now, they don't know, although we hear in the first verse that God has caused the hearts of the people to melt away. And so he's gone ahead of them. He's running interference. It's like he he put a, a, he smoked the beehive, you know, in Canaan so that uh, they are not going to fight like they could have. But the first thing is a total stop of action. First thing, we worship. This generation, as it says, had not been circumcised in the wilderness. Why? Why? It's because it was a sign of the reproach. It says he rolled back the reproach of Egypt. Why is it called the reproach of Egypt? Well, really, when they came up to the land and refused to enter the land, this was the land of their freedom. This is the final act of being delivered from slavery. And not only did they refuse the land, it said, we're going to get a new leader and we're going back to Egypt. So basically... They were embracing their old slavery. They were embracing being lost and enslaved. And the wilderness was a sign of their slavery, even as one by one they died, having rejected God, having rejected the freedom and glory of his salvation. And so all of that is rolled back As they enter the land of Canaan. Here's the sign with circumcision that he is renewing his covenant with them. And the covenant of circumcision was always attached to the promise of the land. It was the guarantee that I am your God and you're my people and I will bring you into the land. And so here is God comforting them, encouraging them right as they enter the land. I am your God. I take you afresh as my people. He puts his sign upon them, rolling away the reproach of Egypt. Now they are manifesting their freedom from the slavery of Egypt. And it is a sign that this land is theirs. He will be with them. And then they celebrate the Passover meal right there as well. This is the remembrance of their deliverance from Egypt. And now it's the guarantee of God's presence to give them the land. It connects their deliverance from Egypt and the parting of the Red Sea. And now they have the Passover right as the parting of the Jordan. So it it brings this continuity to God's care and his deliverance. The fact that he is the one that delivered them then, and he is the one that's delivering them into Canaan. This wonderful remembrance of Passover, being in the presence of God, being under his favor. And this was a sign that you're under my favor now as you begin your first battle. You're my people and I'm with you. And this was an amazing act of obedience because as they, as I said, they just come into the land. They're under danger of attack, but they submit to this worship. It debilitates them. It says that they have to stay in the camp and be healed. I mean, they were exposed, you know, to attack. But they obey God. And the first things first, we will submit ourselves to this God. We will renew our covenant with him, and we will worship him in passover. And the writer puts this purposely in the middle of this uh, whole eight chapters. Actually, it shouldn't be just verses 1 through 5, but 1 through uh, 12 or so. Um, <clears throat> but here is the yellow highlight. That worship must be at the center of our lives. And so it must be for us. And it's not just that we come to worship, which we must. But it's the value we place on worshiping together. It's the anticipation we have for it, the prayers we uh, give up for it, our active participation in the middle of it. This poetry and music and joining of our voices is a fresh entrance together into the awe and adoration and the dedication of ourselves to God. It's a critical aspect of our lives. And to be bored or not even participate, not even sing when we're singing. It's a way to turn your nose up at the at God and the people of God. Now, if you don't believe in Jesus, we, that's fine. You've got to, you know, watch what we do and gather and, and, and catch the fire. And it needs to come from your own heart. I, I understand that. But in our singing, you see, together we're fighting against unbelief. We're fighting against dullness and indifference. We're stirring our hearts to, uh, to love Christ. It's the same with the confession of faith, the confession of sin, the declaration of forgiveness, the call to worship, preaching the Lord's Supper. Every aspect of it is to renew our hearts after God together as his people. And, and what we do here, what we say here, what we listen to here is the center of everything else we do. It, it's not to be this little blip in our week. It's, it's we do it. It's over. We're on to the rest of our, our week. Now it may be that for you. I, it was certainly that for me when I was growing up in the church I was raised. I couldn't wait to get out of there. Couldn't wait, as I've said before, to get out and start and watch NFL football. You know, that's the real point of Sundays, is NFL football, not worship. But this isn't a blip in our week. This defines our week. This is the major influence of our week. It declares who we are and what we are, who we belong to. It declares what he is doing in us, among us, and with us in this world. Here we not only gain clarity of thought week after week, but we gain the sharpening of our souls in His presence together. And brothers and sisters, as we're all striving for that, as we're all anticipating that, as we all believe in that and believe in His presence, it brings about the richness of The results. You know, it said of Jesus, of one place, he could not do any miracles there because of their unbelief. And if you bring unbelief week after week to worship, what is he going to do? But if you bring faith and expectation and helpless dependence and Lord, we cannot be without you. Lord, w- w- look at what we are. Look at our failin- failings. Oh, Lord, renew us. Deepen us. Lord, b- my hardness of heart. Lord, my dullness. Oh, Lord, bring about a richness in your presence together with your people. You see, it's that joint longing and aching as we come together. And the anticipation of what he will do. Then worship You know, becomes the center of our week. It's like we're bringing our individual torches that we've held all week of trust and praise and submission to God. And we're joining them together in this great bonfire so that when we take the torch back, it's a little brighter than it was, right? Because it was lit. I was lit by you and you were lit by me. We were lit by one another in the presence of God. And so Paul will say things like this, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. That's what we want, right? A whole life in which everything I do is done in the name of the Lord Jesus. And that's nurtured and and cultivated uh, among God's people. And in the midst of the hardship and suffering of this world, Peter writes to them sanctify Christ in your heart or set him apart as Lord in your heart, in all of your activity, in the midst of the suffering and the hardship that you go through, set him apart as Lord in your heart. That's all of the week, not just for this hour, right? And so always we're to be controlled by the love of Christ, Paul says. And then in the light of God's mercies in Christ, he says in Romans to constantly present ourselves as a living sacrifice to God. So all of life is worship. All of life has something of the enjoyment of God and delight in God. Something of trusting in God and being amazed at God. Imitating and following Christ. Submitting to God. It's the center of everything, even in your absolute concentration and exhausting effort at your work, at home or outside the home. This is a part of your worship, right? It's a part of your giving yourself up to God, what, to what he has called you and to, to do, to be and to do in this world. So, worship is the center. And then, finally... Our response, and again, us uh, the, the response is couched in these terms of of the counterpoint between Rahab and Achan. You might not see that, except that someone would show us this structure. Oh, wait a minute! Rahab, the unexpected. Rahab, the prostitute, the, the most unlikely person to have faith uh, in 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 God, and the Holy Spirit points us to these two individuals. Interesting. You know, an individual Rahab, the individual Achan, and how they uh, influence the whole of the nation. And in both, it's a matter of Rahab taking Yahweh to be her treasure and losing everything, her culture, her people, her city, losing everything for the sake of having Yahweh and his people, and Achan, even among God's people, even belonging to the family that would one day produce the Lord Jesus Christ, and he renounces, renounces that treasure, renounces his heritage. It's to show, on the one hand, that anybody can come to this God. It doesn't matter where you've been, it doesn't matter how far from God. We're all far from God for that matter. But it doesn't matter how far you feel like you're from God, how how much you've hated God, how much you've despised and dishonored God. It doesn't matter. You are invited with Rahab to take God as your treasure. And it doesn't matter how long you've been in the church. It doesn't matter that your parents are members of the church. What matters is that you embrace Christ as your treasure. Achan, Achan was circumcised with everyone else. He had the sign of belonging to God, but his heart was far from God. So Rahab entrusts her whole future with him. And now God comes to you With even a greater promise than Rahab knew. Because he comes to us with the promise of his own son, Jesus Christ, whom he sent into the world to die for our sins. To bear the punishment we deserve. And he offers us Christ. Every single thing in the Old Testament anticipates Christ. As Jesus himself pointed out as he spoke to his disciples... And so God offers you in Christ the treasure of of forgiveness, of having God's absolute favor always over your life. Not for anything good you've ever done or could do, but because he offers you Christ and he will be your acceptance before God. That's an amazing thing. He will be the reason you're favored because you can be hidden in Christ and know the favor of God. Know the favor of God that will extend even into judgment. You you can know the, the presence and fellowship of God as a treasure, knowing His kindness and His comfort. You can know that His purpose is on your life to... Cause you to be more like Christ, to use everything in your life for the good of you becoming more and more like Christ. And you can trust Him that, as we've already said, He will cause you to become more and more a person who loves others joyfully, who brings the light of God into others' lives. And then the hope that you could have of a final inheritance of glory, a final kingdom, the new heavens and the new earth, the resurrection of your body, a perfect fellowship of love forever, the new creation. All of this treasure He lays out before you. And it will influence every aspect of your life. It will influence your work, it will influence your marriage, it will influence your vacations. (laughs) And I would ask you, what treasure are you going to embrace instead of this God who has demonstrated his love in giving his son? He's come to us, even though we turn against him, to die for us, that he might have us back And, and kids, I would appeal to you as well. It, it is so easy to hear these things from childhood and to harden yourself against it. It's so easy to hear about Jesus and oh, I've heard it a thousand times. How many times are they going to talk about this, right? And I'm always comforted by the passage in Second Corinthians 4 which says, Paul, talking about himself, he said, the God who said, let there be light shone in our hearts to see the glory of Christ. And kids, I would, above all else, I would ask you, pray that prayer. Oh, Lord, shine the beauty of Jesus into my heart. Shine it so that I can't escape it. Shine that beauty in my heart so that I am amazed and I'm I long for him and I entrust myself to him. Oh, Lord, shine the beauty of Jesus into my heart. He longs to have you. He longs for you to have your true treasure in God, in Christ alone. So the worship of God, the word of God, what will be our response to this glorious God? May God shine in our hearts. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for your salvation in Christ. We thank you for the marvelous way you acted on behalf of Israel, opening the way of the the Jordan, uh, tearing down the walls of Jericho. Lord, what do you intend to do for us as a people? What great things will you do for us as you ran interference to them, for them, uh, causing the people of Canaan to have melted hearts, Lord, how will you run interference before us as we seek to bring the gospel to this place and in the world? How have you run ahead? How, how have you, are you working ahead to, to, to change us and, and to change other people's lives? Oh, Lord, enable us to trust you, to trust you, to, to be cross-trained so that we are governed by Jesus and we are fixed upon Jesus and we're more and more in love with Jesus. And we more and more seek to obey Jesus for our good, for your glory, for the good of this broken world. Bless us for Jesus' sake. Amen.